Welcome to Why It Works, book review edition. If you didn't know already, I'm a self-professed self-help and business book junkie. Through my podcast, I've met many authors who have written or are writing transformational books meant to help you unlock your full potential. I didn't want to shoehorn a book discussion into my standard format. So instead, I'm launching a separate edition of Why It Works, where we go behind the pages to explore insights with the author. That said, the goal of the podcast and everything else I do is the same, to uncover the hidden principles behind why things work. I hope you enjoy the show. Why is charisma so elusive? Why is it so hard to define? And why should the benefits of charisma be limited to those few who seem to have been born with it? Wouldn't it be great to be able to unlock your charisma to get the attention, access, and credit you deserve? I'm so excited to share with you I've just released my first ebook, Unlock Your Charisma. Drawing on universal principles of connection, I reveal the hidden principles behind why charisma works. You can't get more of something if you don't know what it is. Unlock Your Charisma will show you how to be heard, be valued, and be chosen. Available on Apple Books and Amazon Kindle. Thank you. Here with us today is Oksana Esberard, Chief Mindfulness Officer of Sattvami and recent author of Next Level You. Together, we explore one of my favorite topics, mindfulness, and learn a little bit more about Oksana's incredible journey through several countries and several stages of personal transformation. Welcome, Oksana, to the Why It Works podcast, first version of the book review. Hey! <laughs> so you and I have known each other uh, for a little bit now. We, we did a podcast together. We met in Atlanta in, uh, for the No Longer Virtual Conference by our good friend, uh, Sarah Elkins. And I know you've been very busy lately. Can you tell us what you've been up to? Wow. It, the time flew by. It's been, it's been a while, right? Um, mostly is the book writing. So besides yes. the regular work, um, speaking and um, educating on the subjects of mindfulness and meditation, I set the goal for 2019 to write a book and incorporate some of the wisdom and the knowledge and the research that I have found and also my personal experiences. And I wanted to put it out into the world, and I wanted to put it into the form of the book. So that has been quite a journey, and it's finally complete, and it's finally here. So, Congratulations. We're, uh, we're very fortunate to have Oksana with us here today, and I thought we'd do something a little bit different uh, for the book review. Um, so as I was reading uh, Next Level You, which I enjoyed very much, um, I got a sense of... of, of you being a world traveler uh, and being in lots of different locations. So a lot of the, the areas, that you, the, the topics you talk about are centered in a, in a city or an area. So I thought it would be fun if we followed you sort of chronologically through that journey uh, and you could sort of um, add some additional details or commentary on what that experience was like. That would be my pleasure. I really have a wide geography. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, great. So we'll start in the beginning. Uh, you know, your words, not mine, the village girl uh, section where uh, you grew up uh, with your parents in Dalnogorsk, Russia. 
and what was interesting to me there uh, were a couple things. Maybe we could start with uh, the connection with nature that you felt so strongly there. Yes, I, I was very fortunate to grow up in what I call the middle of nowhere. If you think about Russia, it's, a, it's the biggest country of the world, and then the majority of people tend to center themselves around Moscow, and then you say, no, 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 I'm from the far east of Russia, and they're like, is it Siberia? I'm like, no, 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 no. you need to go further, because Siberia is kind of in the middle. So you literally need to think about the east coast of Russia between northern islands of Japan and China, and there is this little area of land there, the Russian land, that not so many people realize. It's kind of shape of Florida, um, but on the east side, we have the northern part of Japan and um, the Japanese Sea. And on the west side, we have Chinese border. So I was lucky enough to be born in the middle of the mountains where the closest airport, like eight hours away and surrounded by nature. So when we're surrounded by nature, the mountains, beautiful four seasons, it's, um, it, it was really a blessing for me because I didn't know words mindfulness and meditation, I just was mindful. And I will lose myself in this meditative awareness by staring in the open sky or being in the woods or swimming in the rivers or sunbathing. It was a natural state to me and I didn't realize that how natural and, and amazing it felt until I lost it. So um, that's when you start to put things into perspective and thinking, hmm, I actually had a fantastic mindful childhood. You know, you hear a lot about that uh, just from research, right? We, they talk about just the benefits of being outside or getting fresh air. And so when I, when I read that in the book, it made a lot of sense to me. It was just like, you know, we see progress as, you know, cities and buildings and, you know, the concrete jungle we live in. But I, I got to believe sometimes uh, it works against us. We, we miss out on something when we separate ourselves so much from nature. It's not only that we miss out, it's actually the opposite is true. Nature gives us the healing impact, the mindful impact, the, that connection and unity, the peace and ability to rejuvenate. And when we're away from nature, we actually accelerate and we have mental illnesses, we have emotional instabilities. So it's, it's really, um, we are one with nature. We're still, human beings tend to think like we're a separate race and separate kind and we're not really animals, but we are 95% animals. This body is just the, like the body of the dog or the cow. It just has more consciousness and more complex nervous system. But in a nutshell, it is part of nature. It is nature, and it abides by the laws of nature. So if we break those laws of surrounding ourselves with concrete and information and pretending like we don't need that unity, then it takes a toll on us. And we can see it in the statistics of mental and emotional health nowadays. Wow. You know, another thing um, that I learned uh, that I didn't know was that it wasn't all just good times when uh, you were in Downagorsk. There was some bullying uh, that went on as well, and, and that kind of affected you and shaped your childhood. What can you share with us kind of about that experience and, and how that was incorporated into your life? Yeah, it's, it's very interesting because until I started to write the book, I didn't think about how it impacted me as as a child. I mean, all children tease one another and all children kind of, you know, peek at one another. Russian children are no different. And we were <laughs> born in Soviet Union. And even though, you know, different country, different mentality, people are people, kids are kids. 
And the kids were, um, I would say, more harsh on me for various reasons. Um, one, I was always overachiever. I always wanted to do more. I enjoyed studying. I was always putting extra effort. And I wasn't popular because of that, because I was just keep raising the bar and you know nobody would do the homework and I did and it would, <laughs> it would not score well with other kids and what I didn't realize is uh, only until I started to write this book and I started to rehearse how was my childhood what was the impact I've, I've realized the connection that it made into my adult life so as a kid I um, had little school friends and throughout the years and it wasn't aggressive bullying it was mostly verbal and it was a lot of teasing and isolation and kind of like peeking and doing little nasty things that kids do uh, but because it was such a prolonged period of time it was for several years uh, up until I, I left that place that I've realized that I had issues with teamwork I was always this lonely wolf I had a mentality of I'd rather do it by myself that why bother having the teamwork why bother engaging other people I don't I didn't see value um, in teamwork I didn't see uh, I saw other people in the team as obligation and mm. it continued throughout my adult life um, up until maybe a couple of years ago when I actually started to do this work on mindfulness and meditation, that's when I, I, I really was this isolated entity and identity. I didn't like to engage in teamwork. Teamwork was like the worst. It was like a punishment for me. But I never got give it a thought of why. And as I was writing this book, it kind of clicked together with me. I realized that, oh my God, like all of these things. I mean, I realized that earlier um, when, I, I don't want to jump the story, I realized it sooner in India, but here it was just coming together as this big piece. And I finally saw and connected those dots. And I realized that, wow, how many other things that happened to me back in the childhood that I didn't think much of, but they impact me as an adult and they run this program in me that really limits my ability to um, to do things because now I, I'm convinced that teamwork is amazing. I cannot do anything by myself. <laughs> <laughs> so there's, uh, there's fantastic people that are helping me even to launch this book and especially to launch and, and produce and, and, and make this book life. Um, so yeah, it was just a wrong mindset, a wrong, wrong mentality that was installed with me because of the trauma um, that happened when I was a kid. What I find so fascinating about uh, what you're talking about is that this sense that you don't even realize that it's going on in a way. I mean, you were aware you didn't like teamwork, but you didn't realize that it was kind of being driven by this pattern from the past and that there was another way for you to be. It was almost like you didn't realize you had a choice to live life differently. And I think pretty much all of us live a lot of our lives that way, right? We just think we're normal, right? We're, we're, we're normal um, because that's just kind of what we're doing. But in actuality, there's a lot of things that are normal good and there are things that could be normal better in terms of uh, you know, how we operate. Yeah, it's, it comes from the thing we don't know what we don't know. Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, it's really we, we don't know how many things come into play and most of it related to our subconscious and how our, how our subconscious is structured. And really, subconscious is just gigantic memory box, which mostly gets formed and collected up until age of seven. And then it gets reinforced up until age of 12. 
And then it's just this collection of memories, ongoing collection of memories. And depending on how impactful the, the, these events were on our emotional well-being and depending on whether we were able to process them healthy or we just got traumatized and we wanted to pile it up so we don't need to deal with it so we don't need to feel the pain a lot of times of this conditioning or programming happens with us because we are not equipped to deal with the pain i certainly as a kid and i i, I think that Part of this is being a Soviet Union upbringing. We don't talk about emotions. We didn't talk about emotions there. You toughed it out. You don't talk about shortages. You don't talk about limitations. You don't talk about how you feel. Um, and I think even in the United States and the West, it resonates. You say, boys don't cry. This is one of those things that we're not in touch with our feelings. But it's the feelings that help us to process traumatic experiences. And instead of piling them up and bottling them down and seeing when they're going to explode in our face, like happened with me several times, um, we, we should be able to get in touch with our emotions. And that's where emotions like sadness, anger, grief, um, and any kind of painful experiences, they're not bad or good. They are there for us to process, learn from them, accumulate them as wisdom, and then move on, but not get scarred and traumatized so then we can get it as anger or you know, limitation or isolation like I did with people and teamwork. Yeah. Well, what, what's really interesting to me about what you're saying is this idea of culture informing how we think, our, our programming, to, to use some of your language. And that's a good segue into our next city, which was you had the opportunity uh, to go to Texas and get your first taste of America. Um, tell us a little bit about how that opportunity came about and, and how that shifted sort of your view of culture and, and what was possible. Absolutely. Well, despite being in the middle of nowhere, and I have no idea how that happened other than the fate, um, we had a fantastic English-speaking school, which was bringing American volunteers every year. And I had an opportunity to really heavily study English and practice it with American speakers. And that enabled me to participate in the competition that no longer runs, unfortunately. It was called FLAX, Future Leaders Exchange Program. And it was only for ex-Soviet Union republics for kids 15 and 16 years old to come to the United States for one year as an exchange student. An American government will pay for you and they will buy you the tickets. And they even paid us some stipend to be able to afford basic things. And they would place us in American families, um, just like I would become a daughter or sister or brother um, for, another, for another family. And uh, a family from Texas picked me. I didn't select where would I go inside the United States. It could be anywhere. But a family from Texas picked me, and I really lucked out because they were an amazing people, and they really treated me like their daughter. Um, yet, when I came, uh, once the excitement was gone, uh, I realized how different the, the countries are and the cultures. And yes, throughout the, the competition, they prepare you, and they say, this is Americans. They're going to be different. This isn't going to be different. And you give all the right answers, and you know that, yeah, for sure I would not react and I would respond in this and this mature way and I would not throw the socks out and I would not beat the dog if, if the dog barks at me like you give all the smart smart answers but when it actually comes to the uh 
to, to coming to the United States, you start to hit to get hit with things that you were not prepared for. And one of the funniest one for me, it actually was like the first day, I, not maybe the first day, but like the next day we went for a walk. And as I was walking with my host mom, uh, people that we were passing by, they waved and they say hi. And immediately I was like, do you know them? And she's like, no. I'm like, but why are you saying hi? And why are you waving at each other? And she's like, because it's a nice thing to do. And I was like, what weird concept? Like, <laughs> nice to strangers. <laughs> because nobody is nice to strangers in Russia ever. Like, even if you know people, you're still not that friendly sometimes. Right. So, um, and then there were so many different um, aspects of that that you're just not prepared. Um, as, um, never mind as an adult, I think it would be shocking for an adult to come from a different culture. But when you're 16 years old and you just kind of like your eyes are wide open i um with that i really liked it though i like that positivity and i like that um that, that lightness that you have more freedom to do the things and they're not that kind of like boxed and there there were more colors there were more smells and on the on the other spectrum when christmas hit and all the cinnamon was in the air and i think i was allergic to it because i really did not like it um but the holiday season was there so it, it just showed me a different opportunity and a different possibility and i thought that wow it would be amazing to live outside of my culture and experience this and make it my home and um, and take the grit and perseverance and strength that I have as Russian, but I wanted that love and kindness and smiles and just easiness that United States was, was offering versus um, where I was from, so. Yeah, it's really interesting to me how you know, if you just grow up in one region or one area, and the people you meet are just from that region or area. You, you, again, it's like a fish swimming in water. You don't realize that, that there's water around you. You don't realize that there could be a different type of water, right? You could be in salt water, like what's fresh water, right? And it's just, I find that people that I've met who've, who've traveled more or lived in different places, it tends to benefit them in terms of they have a wider perspective, right? Because you think, well, if this happens in the world, there's only one perception of it, and that's it. That's the way everyone thinks of it. But nothing could actually be further from the truth. If you travel to other countries, let's say, and hear their opinion of America, it's, it's very different than perhaps my opinion of America. Yeah, it's, it's definitely, I mean, it was an incredible year, but we also saw how different we are. And even the level of communication, when I would communicate with my host mom, not because I was mean and not because I meant it in the wrong way, I would say, you will go to the grocery store with me. And she was like, okay. And what I meant is that, will you go to the grocery store with me? Because I uh... want to eat dinner, right? So even the structure of the sentences, the way I was putting it, they were feeling, and I would have it like with a little heavy, a little bit of heavier accent that I have now. <laughs> 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 it sounds pretty threatening. And, you know, this determined, like, I, I need to cook. We will go to the grocery store with <laughs> So we still laugh about it with my, with my host parents sometimes, so... Well, and, and people who, who haven't met you in person might not know, but uh, Oksana, you're, you're, you're quite tall. You're taller than the uh, maybe perhaps average, uh, you know, woman at, at that time. So it must have been intimidating if you're looking down on your house mom saying, you must do this. 
Well, yeah, I was taller than her, but it's interesting because I was this typical, very skinny kid. So from <laughs> the airport, when they saw me, they immediately were like, we need to feed you and we need to bleach your teeth. Oh, my teeth were so yellow. Oh, no. That we do that, that, you know, it was like the both cultural components of, uh-huh. of the things. I had horrible haircuts. And uh, the, my host mom was immediately like, we need to go get your hair, we need to bleach your teeth, and we need to feed you because you're too skinny. You look like a starving Soviet Union kid. So it, even though, like, you know, those, those um, cultural components, it, it, definitely, it definitely went both ways um, several times. So it sounds like from the book and our conversation here that um, it was a great experience uh, in Texas. However, you ended up going back or having to go back to Moscow and that lifestyle was quite different than both Texas and your former location in uh, Downagorsk where you grew up. So share with us a little bit about how that came to be in your uh, sort of new experience in Moscow. Yeah, I had to go back because of the visa requirements, even though I really wanted to stay and we explored every possibility for me to stay in the United States. It wasn't possible. And during that year when I was in the U.S., my parents moved to Moscow and there was really no future in Dalingorsk anymore where I'm from. Um, if, if I wanted to, there was not even a many major university. There was no university. It was just a little cooking college, I think, but that's about it. So if you wanted to build a future and grow as an adult, you need to move out. So my parents moved to Moscow and uh, again, I was super excited and I usually do a lot of things with a lot of enthusiasm and only then find out all the roadblocks. So the same thing happened with Moscow. I was so excited. I arrived there after the United States. I was smiling wide to everyone and was saying hi to everyone. Got shut down after three days because people were looking at me like I'm crazy. <laughs> and I also realized that um, after I started to live there, I realized that big city culture, even inside Russia, even inside my own country, is like a separate country. So Moscow, we, we kind of joke within Russia is that there's Russia and there's Moscow because it has such a different mentality. And I would say that it's comparable to New York. The pace is very fast. People are really driven. The people oriented on making it happen, making the money, uh, you know, doing the hours and the work. And um, me being, uh, I would say, when I returned 17 and I kind of was transitioned to my adulthood at that time, I realized that it's a very material environment. And like we were talking earlier, it's a big city that is isolated from nature, 100%. Even if you go to a park there, it's not an isolated park. It's not even like a central park in New York. It's really, really crowded. The Moscow real estate is is notorious for, for its expensiveness. It, it was the number one most expensive city for many years. And I found myself really far from that sense of mindfulness, unity, connection. And I was battling, and I described this more in more detail in the book, I was battling things of material um, possessions and that my parents were not rich. and I was not famous. Um, I had to overcome several huddles with uh, the modeling career that I decided to pursue there and um, on the spectrum of relationship with men. Um, all of this thing kind of got all confused and mixed up. Um, Nevertheless, I made really good years out of Moscow. I spent there four years and I started to study in the university, one of one of the most prestigious universities. And it was a it was a, it was a good learning ground for the adult life. 
Um, but talking about that programming, it put a lot of bugs into my system, which I'm still clearing it out. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> now, the, the materialistic aspect that you mentioned, I think everyone can kind of relate to that, right? Like, you know, you, you go shopping, whether it's online or, or in person, and you buy something and there's like this, you feel good, right? There's this sort of um, positive, maybe short burst of, of, of happiness you get. But I think what most people also experience is it's never enough, right? Like you always need the next thing, the, the, the high or the joy of that initial purchase never remains beyond. Um, how did the materialism kind of affect your kind of mental outlook and, and your perspective, you know, as you sort of shifted more into that world from the more natural world that you were in previously? Yeah, for, for me, I knew both sides, right? I was the still little girl from the nature of Russia, that connection, that unity, that happiness that does not require any money. I was very happy the majority of my childhood and it's only when I entered into adult world and I was told work hard, study hard, earn money, create dispositions, achieve this, do that, do this, and then you're going to be happy. And I did just that because I was a very diligent kid. I was a very good hearted kid and I had no filters. So if adults tell me this is what I need to do in life. I am on it, right? And with my Russian grit and perseverance. So I really dived in into this concept of study hard, then you get a good job, then you're going to earn good money, and then you're going to be able to buy anything that you want, so you're going to be happy, you're going to have stability and safety. And I quickly um, started to realize that it doesn't make me happy. I was studying and I was working and I was doing everything that people tell me to do. But the more I was chasing money, the more I was trying to look like that model look girl, the more I was trying to behave like the people that I was admiring, the people that had the money because modeling has access to a lot of money. So the more I was trying to chase that world, the more unhappy I become. I was angry. I was uh, frustrated. I was constantly protecting myself from different things. And it wasn't conscious at that time, but subconsciously, I really, really got disconnected from my natural state of mindfulness, of peace, of connection. And there were no grounds to recharge. In, in Dalygorsk, it was natural. If I would get off balance at school, I'll just go and have a walk and go swim by the rivers and do mushroom picking and I would restore my balance naturally. But in Moscow, it just was accumulating. There was no outlet anymore. There was no, um, the island of restoration. So it just kept accumulating as stress, constant, mm. constant, constant unhappiness. The nervous system gets cramped up. My mental states got cramped up. Um, and I think that's where I started to experience prolonged, um, rounds of depression. I have problems with my stomach almost constantly. Um, I, I just had bad relationship with my parents at some point. It was just accumulating. It, it starts to impact. The stress starts to impact all the areas of life. But I didn't know what is causing it. It was just, I was living the life like everybody else tells you, right? And pretending that everything is great on the other side. That's pretending part is the dual existence that I did in Moscow a lot. I was super unhappy and that little Downing Wars girl really wanted to just hide in the woods. But on the outside, I was in the prestige university. I was dressed well. I was going to fancy places. I was partying in the fancy places with fancy people. So it was just like two people living in one me. Yeah, I just, um, 
I wonder how common that experience is, right? I, I imagine a lot of people have this idea like, okay, maybe I came from a smaller town and now I've made it to, to the big city, whatever that happens to be. And, and now I've made it. And you're doing all the things that society tells you or maybe your parents tell you are important to do. But there's, there can be like a profound you know, emptiness inside if it's not really what you're meant to do. Now, you transition from Moscow to another big city. You came back to the States in Miami. Uh, and you talk a lot about um, sort of your different uh, sort of actions and stresses that you had there. So tell us a little bit about that transition from Moscow to Miami and that chapter of your life. Yeah, just just to do before before I go there, I wanted sure. to say that this duality that you just mentioned, mm. it can happen not necessarily from big city to small city. It can happen mm. if you were a musician and your parents told you to do finance or being a lawyer. So yes. it's really not geography specific. It's suppression of who we really are and what is important and what fulfills us that creates that duality. And it happens more often that people even realize within themselves. And that's what mostly kind of like we work with when we talk about mindfulness and meditation as tools. So I um, wanted to add that is I think it's very important. Um, transition from Moscow to Miami. So even though I moved to Moscow, I still was fascinated by the United States. I really, really wanted to live there. I wanted to live abroad. I wasn't, I, I thought Moscow was a meat grinder and I was looking for all these ways. And finally, after four years, I got an opportunity for a business program um, to go back to the United States. And it's really not a direct journey, but it was kind of Pennsylvania, Texas, then Miami, Florida. I found Florida by chance, so to say. I came here on Thanksgiving break and I fell in love with palm trees and the ocean and the beach and the sand. And at that time, I still had that material kind of rolling the, the wheels in me. And I, you know, I really like the, the parties of Miami. <laughs> because I was used to partying in Moscow and doing all this uh, luxury lifestyle. And Miami was fitting right in, plus the beautiful weather and um, great hospitality school that I wanted to study at that time. So it was kind of the match and the love and first sight. But it wasn't coming from the place of peace and serenity and this is what I want to do. It was more coming from, I like to party this is comfortable, this is far away from Moscow, this is the United States, and I was still in that mindset, the material mentality of escape. I was still, uh, you know, very traumatized and stressed and anxious without realizing it within me, so I just found what I was doing in Moscow. I just changed the geographical location, but I didn't change. I was just continuing doing similar things here. Now, there was one thing that you mentioned in that chapter that was so interesting to me. You, you mentioned how um, you felt or, or used, I don't know what the right word is, sort of dancing as mindfulness. There was this feeling of mindfulness when you're dancing. And I found that kind of fascinating. Maybe explain a little bit more about um, why you wrote about that and, and how you experienced that. Right. Um, well, when I, when I talk about mindfulness or being mindful, it means being fully present being within your body, being connected with the environment and the five senses. And that experience of full presence gives you freedom. It gives you liberation. It's ecstatic and it's, um, and it's open and expansive. And you can access those states at different 
angles. You can access it by playing sports. You can access it in nature. You can access it through meditation. And at that time, without knowing any of these concepts, I found my escape in nightclubs. That's why I even liked it so much in Moscow, and that's why I liked it so much in Miami, because in the, in the vibe of dance, I would close my eyes and I would be a little bit dizzy from alcohol and I, I smoked here and there at that time. So my senses would be numb and I would be in this dark, sparkly environment and I would be totally united with my body and my mind will just disappear there. There were no chatter. It would be filled with music because it's so loud in the nightclub that I wouldn't have that constant chatter, negativity, analysis. Um, you know, what ifs, worries, doubts, insecurities, it was just empty and I would be united and connected with my body. And that was an addictive experience for me. I wanted more of it. And the only place that I could replicate it at a time was in the nightclubs. And therefore, I kept coming back because <laughs> I wanted more of that. Now, you mentioned, though, there was a price to pay for that, right? So, so you know, I, I can totally understand how that sort of experience can, can actually connect you to, to, to mindfulness, but there's different ways to access it. And some of it may have less or more side effects. And, and you talked about sort of the side effects of, of that sort of mindfulness. Absolutely. Um, you cannot, I mean, have you ever been in a nightclub sober? <laughs> <laughs> I take the fifth. <laughs> yeah. It's painful. I've attempted. It doesn't work. Um, so when, when you go to an environment like that, that is completely uh, unnatural to our senses because it's so loud, it's usually um, full of smoke, you have to numb your senses. You have to drink alcohol and to get even higher without smoke. I never did any drugs in the nightclubs. Um, full disclosure. <laughs> so... But people do stimulants, including drugs, in the night environment in order to be able to cope and expand and alter your state of consciousness. Because if you go there when you're still thinking about work and you're preoccupied about your kids and you think about how you're going to pay your rent, then it's not fun completely. So you need to take that out of your head. And the way to do it is by stimulants, alcohol, cigarettes, smoking, um, drugs, whatever people use to do that. And of course, it comes with a huge toll on our body. Um, the next day, my hangovers were horrible. Um, my dehydration, just, just tiredness, general tiredness of jumping night until five in the morning, you know, four in the morning. Miami nightclubs open that late and then doing some after party. So, and sometimes I would need to go to work the next day. I would party two, three times a week. It's not like I would just go every once in a while and enjoy myself. No, that was my job. Like that was my second job mm -hmm. and I was that addicted to it. And so I would just be completely dysfunctional. And I also learned that alcohol is a huge depressant. So I'll be depressed. I'll be sleepless, restless, and it just escalates. So unless you learn how to rejuvenate. And of course, if, when you're in your 20s, um, you have higher bank of energy and you kind of use that up. But it really comes with, with a lot of expenses on the psychic and your mental and emotional stability that hit me later. Even though physically I could pull it off, mentally and emotionally, it hit me really, really hard later as well. So um, it was just not pretty all around. I was not a happy being. <laughs> so uh, you're in Miami. You're, you're experiencing uh, the life. Let's just call it the lifestyle there. Uh, and your next stop was to Hong Kong, which I imagine is 
quite a big change of scenery. Um, how did you happen to transition over to Hong Kong and, and what was that experience like for you? Well, the, the, the toll that I paid with all this partying and throwing myself out there was um, actually the big burnout and um, depression and anxiety, I would say both at once. And uh, it, it, it happened after four years of being in Florida. And I felt like I achieved my American dream, um, but I was ultimately unhappy. I was literally suicidal. And I've decided that I need to completely abandon everything that I was doing. I didn't know any other way how to deal with that level of intensity of emotion that I was going through. I didn't know mindfulness and meditation at that time yet. And I uh, just decided to, to, to run away. You know, it's fight or flight. So I couldn't fight anymore. There was no energy in me. I was so depressed, so anxious, so tired. And I decided to run away to probably the furthest spot that I could find, the English-speaking country, and kind of like a, a few circumstances aligned that I don't mention within the book. Um, but it's just, it's just, it just aligned. And so I uh, packed everything within like two weeks with my job, broke the relationships that I have here, parked the car, um, you know, gave, gave up the apartment, and I left to Asia. Um, just, this is a tool of escape and um, shifting the gears. And I thought that this is the smartest and the best thing I can do to start over. Uh, but looking backwards, this probably was the dumbest thing that I've done because I, I, I ran away, but I brought myself with the same problems, with the same exact <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I thought that was interesting. I, I, I think you did mention that in the book, or maybe I thought that when I was reading it, it's like, it's like you moved locations, but you can't move yourself, right? You, you brought the same self that was part of the system of, of uh, challenges, let's call it, that you were having, and you just changed geography. Um, you know, not to say that changing geography can't, you know, be a helpful thing. Um, so in uh, Hong Kong, you're, you're going through some of the uh, similar sort of challenges. It's a transitional time for use because you've, you've broken away from um, some of the things in Miami, which, which can be a good thing. And then um, something quite um, traumatic uh, happens while, while you're there. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that and then how that affected you? Yes. Um, about six months into, actually five months into me being in Hong Kong, I received that call that nobody ever wants to receive. Um, about my dad being in hospital, he had um, in Moscow, he had uh, a gas lamp exploded in his hands, and he um, he got 50% degrees burns and multiple broken bones, and he was hospitalized in the most extreme urgent care that um, exists in, in everywhere, I think. And uh, I found myself within 24 hours. I found myself in Moscow. Um, expecting and fighting for his life but mostly waiting and unfortunately he, he passed away after 10 days of um of uh this very very um long 10 days and, and battles and um i i think this is um this is the first real rock bottom that i hit when i realized that i'm not going to climb out of that one by myself it was it was uh, it virtually put me out um, i didn't have much choice but after some time i returned to hong kong and that's where i feel that the places sometimes find you and hong kong was um, a really good ground because it was in asia 
it's Eastern philosophy, not Western philosophy. And instead of um, sending me to therapy, which would happen in the West, and people will give me pills to, to pills to here, um, I actually got a recommendation to go to a holistic center. And uh, there I learned about transcendental meditation. They did Reiki healing for me. They did private coaching. Um, almost like therapy, but absolutely holistic, no medications, it's more breathing-based and yoga-based and, and all these things. And um, that's where I finally realized, number one, how messed up I am from everything that happened to me up until then. Um, I was 25 at that time. And also that there was alternatives, that it's not the drugs and alcohol and smoking that will lift me up from that emotional misery there must be other tools and that unity within myself that I need to work on. And I started to feel that, those glimpses of positive energy. So that was my first time when I really started to see and awaken to the difference and realization of what energy sources I was using throughout my life. Yeah, I think it's uh, fascinating that you happen to be in a location that uh, again, opened your perspective, right? It, 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 it opened your mind to other possibilities. I mean, my guess, I don't know Russia, but my guess is if you were in Russia, you wouldn't have received that sort of uh, advice either. Now, um, so you're starting to sort of uh, expand into uh, who you eventually um, start to become in the future and, and getting a taste of that. And then you head back to Miami uh, and then take quite a significant trip of when you're in Miami to, to sort of further your, let's call it spiritual and mindfulness journey. Tell us a little bit about how that came about. Yeah, I... I for the medical reasons, I couldn't stay in Hong Kong, and it kind of expired. Like once I found that path, I, I still was tippy-toeing. I still would go out, and then I would go and meditate. And then, you know, like when you find something, you still fluctuate. It's like you want to be without coffee, but you would drink one cup. And I kept you got you got a toe in the water. You got a toe yeah. in the mindfulness water. <laughs> exactly, but I wasn't ready to abandon my habits and how sure. I like to live my life at that time. Um, I was still pretty committed to pain and suffering and anxiety that I was experiencing. Um, but nevertheless, it got me started and I started to practice. And when I came back to Miami, Florida, because I, uh, of different um, uh, immigration things that needed to happen, um, I actually continued. And slowly, 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 my interest um, was rising about why these things are working, you know. And it's interesting because I was only doing it uh, as my personal life but I wouldn't do it at work and I wouldn't do it with, you know, colleagues. And I wouldn't, I would talk about it with certain people, but not with the other. It was really separated. Again, this duality, there's the two people in me that were happening. And as I was, um, as I was approaching the 30th birthday, I thought that I really would like something special. I've done parties all around the world throughout this time. Up until that age, I traveled to 55 plus countries all around the world. I partied in most of them. So I really did not feel like I can throw another party and be happy about it. And I felt like I want to do something different. And as a gift to myself, I thought that I want to go to a retreat and I want to detox and I want to be silent and I want to meditate and I don't want to do all the things that I've done before. Um, and I had that intention, but I didn't do anything to search for it. And again, life gives you what you need when you're ready for it. So kind of this place found me, I saw a post on Facebook, and then I, it was a friend of mine, I said, and it really attracted me, that picture of Bridge and the monkeys, and I was like, where is it? So she told me, India, and I was like, 
ugh, like India, I traveled to 55 plus countries. India was the bottom of my list to go to. So I was like, ah, does it really have to be India? I'm like, yeah, let's think about it. I'm not really committed. But when she came back, um, she had this glow on her. Mm. She was just so radiant and peaceful and like everything that I was longing for. Everything that I had as a child, but I lost it completely. It was no near to be found in me anymore. And I was like, and I recognized it. And I was like, okay, tell me about this place. Like, where are you going? What? And she did. And so um, I realized that it really in the agreement, besides being in India, it was really in the agreement with me. And I booked my spot for, to go there in the soonest spot that I, I could. <clears throat> and, I, and I went to India without knowing much. Um, I only talked to my friend extensively to prepare myself as, as possible, as good as I could. Um, but other than that, it was just the notion that this is what's needed. And I went for it. Now, lest people uh, misunderstand, that trip was amazing and transformational, but it wasn't all sunshine and roses, right? In, it, it was it was from your book, the way you tell it, it was very challenging. There were a lot of tears. There was a lot of um, sort of facing yourself. Tell us a little bit about what role that retreat played in, in your transformation. Yeah, it's interesting because I think it will resonate with a lot of people. When we think about the tools of mindfulness and meditation, when we think that, oh, I'm going to, like the New Year's resolutions, I'm going to meditate this year, or I'm going to do this breathing techniques, or I'm going to do this exercises, I'm really going to start living holistic, healthy lifestyle. Um, we think that the change is going to be immediate. And once we decided it, and once we start to meditate, the peace will glow upon us. I'm going to lift us up. And we're going to feel this serenity and unity. And we're going to be happy and fulfilled. Well, the news is that, unfortunately, first, we need to deal with the programming that was installed in us. And first, we need to recognize the emotional pain that we suppressed very long time ago. And when you start to do this work, when you start to pay attention to yourself, your nervous system first starts to scream out and starts to act out. And it starts to show you all the pains and insecurities that you were putting like on the garbage bin on the back burner. And it all bubbles up almost like a tsunami wave. And that's what a lot of people are not used to. And a lot of people are quitting because it's too painful. It's too uncomfortable. It's not what they were expecting. It's not that peace and serenity. Um, and that's what happened to me in India, except that I had no escape. I was in the middle of the Himalayas, and I was with a group. And I had the only choice is to go through the full motion of exercise and cry it out, experience it out, shout it out. Um, and my first experiences of meditation were not of peace and transformation. They were a lot of loud chatter, a lot of insecurities, a lot of old stories. And then what is um, fascinating about this place and the techniques that I used there is that not only we would sit in the quiet, we actually did a lot of um, practices that's called kriyas, which are paired with the breathing, certain types of breathing. Sometimes they're paired with sounds and mantras, and a lot of them are really large. Like you will roar like a lion. Or you will run, like you will run in one place to really get the anxiety out of your body. And, um, or you will like dance like crazy all around. So it was both the experiences of you cultivate the peace within you, but also you need to address the, all the wiring of the nervous system that happened prior. 
And it was merging in this beautiful, beautiful experience that um, my first training there, I, as I say, I cried 19 days out of 21. Doesn't mean that I cried the whole day, um, but I certainly was like an emotional roller coaster. I would go up and I was in super bliss and I would be hugging the trees and kissing the ground and I'll go down and I'm desperate and I remember my childhood traumas and all the things that happened in Moscow and I'll be miserable and desperate. So um, it's, um, it's really, uh, once you start working on yourself, it requires courage. It requires a lot of courage to face that first wave. But after that, there's so much peace, there's so much happiness and joy that um, I don't think there's any other way. Yeah, what I love about what you're saying, Oksana, you know, really kind of demystifying the whole process, right? It's not like the, 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 the chimes and everything's beautiful and sunshine and all of a sudden you're like, uh, I'm a better person. You know, the, the, the thing that I learned about your life journey from your life journey is you had been programmed just like all of us are a certain way and the programming was so deep and there's, you know, trauma, you know, not necessarily physical trauma, but all sorts of emotional and, you know, trauma. Uh, and to think that you can just start breathing differently and, you know, read a book and all of a sudden that all goes away and, and you become your true self. If you really stop and think about it, you're like, no, it's going to get really ugly before it gets better. But the bonus is you find out who you're really meant to be. And I think that's sort of the beautiful part of, of where you, I don't want to say ended up because our journeys are all continuing. You're, you're, but, but you were able to get to that part of your, your journey through that process and I love how you said you weren't able to escape right because like how much of us like start to feel like ah, I'm a little bit uncomfortable I'm going to turn on the Netflix or I'm going to you know text my friend or something it's very easy today for us just to eject out of that what has been sort of your experience working with people and sort of um, helping them sort of stay grounded and, and stick with that process well, um, that is exactly the reason and I didn't realize it at first I went through that experience way before I started to teach about it. And then I started to think backwards. I'm like, what helped me? Why did I stay? What was the things? And I think that Russian grit and perseverance, that was one of the blessings that I got because I have tremendous amount of discipline. I have more discipline than the average people would have or want to have, uh, <laughs> combined with stubbornness too. Um, and um, I, I designated um, a whole like section in the book in the last chapter say, it doesn't feel right. So don't expect it to feel right when you're first starting. You would be really, really lucky if you have great first meditations when they're peaceful and, and amazing. But that even when I work with my clients, um, the, the rough time comes. There comes the time where this whole history starts to bubble up. And the more you start to observe it, the more unsettled it gets. And um, the accountability, the majority of my private clients, I work with them on 6 and 12 months. And we commit and we lock that in before we even start working together. That's the expectation of like, you are going to hit the rough time. So the accountability of someone else being there and having a kind of, number one, someone to talk who understands this is what's going to happen and setting up this expectation. Everything that happened to me was, um, it actually happened for me, but it was kind of a surprise. I, I, I was catching my breath with it. Uh, whereas now with the people I work and with the groups I work, I'm telling them this is what's going to happen. 
So it's no longer the shocking, oh, I didn't know, I wasn't prepared. And I give them an exit. I'm like, this is what's going to happen. Are you sure you want to go there? Are you sure this is the right time that in your life? Because sometimes they go through so much transformation that it's not a good time to take that one on as well. Personal transformation cannot happen when you are, you know, at the same time dealing with job issues and somebody else is sick in the family and you're going through a divorce. It's, it's really, really, really hard to do when you need to care to give care for other people as well. So um, everything has its own time. I always say that the right teacher will find you. But having the teacher, having accountability and having the right understanding. So it's always the wisdom and the knowledge, the information the support, the community, and the teacher. So you have the guide to walk you through. I didn't do this transformation myself. It would be ridiculously arrogant for me to say that, oh, I've done it. No, I had the teacher in India that I write, I wrote in my book extensively about, Anand. I had the teachers after him, and he's still my teacher. I have different resources and tools that I use, and I rely heavily on my network of people. So... I still experience a lot of rough times and that what pulls me up and holds me accountable and the, the people in the network. So there are several things that needs to, to happen. It's the right knowledge, the right information, the right tools, because a lot of people take the wrong tools in the wrong time. That needs to be the teacher or the guide that will help you to go through it. And it could be a book. The guide could be a book, but usually it's, uh, it's stronger and more chances that it's a, it's a real person. And then it's, it's the community. For me, my community is, that, is my work. The mindfulness community, you, uh, the people that I meet, all of these people are holding me accountable. I created this company because I wanted accountability, because I knew that if I have this, I will have to keep going. I'll have to keep evolving. And that is my accountability. And sometimes I do not want to work on myself, but then I think, mm, what about all those people that's going to read this? Like, uh, better, better do good myself so I can pass it on. <laughs> I love that uh, accountability trick. Sometimes I use it too. Um, as we wrap up, I wanted to ask uh, one last question. Um, a lot of people, you know, have heard the word mindfulness now, right? Like if you work in a company or if you just read the news, you see mindfulness, mindfulness, mindfulness. You see articles about the benefits. You see how the science is, is matching, you know, what um, sort of Eastern practitioners have known for many, many years. The thing that I find interesting, and, and you sort of hint at this or talk about this in your book, is mindfulness is a tool. Mindfulness is not necessarily the final destination or, or, or the benefit. Mindfulness kind of helps you sort of access something else. So share a little bit about your thoughts about, you know, the context of mindfulness in terms of sort of becoming, to use your words, your next level you. Absolutely. Well, I'd like to go back to that little girl in Dalingors because that's the biggest analogy that I could, um, I could say what mindfulness meditation brings into people's life. Um, when I was little, and I think we all have these experiences, you have this sense of unity. You have this, you can watch the sky, or you can be in the woods, or you can watch a frog on the street, and you have this sense of unity and expensiveness, and you're fulfilled, you're complete, and you really can take anything on. You can achieve whatever you want to achieve. There's no boundaries, there's no limitation. 
And I think when we come to this world, we have that childhood innocence. We have that belief and hope and, and strength and energy to do all these beautiful things and find fulfillment. And it really makes us happy. As adults, we'll lose that. We get about life. We get educated. We get conditioned. We get programmed. And um, if you, if, what if I told you that you can find that sense of fulfillment and unity and energy while you're sitting in the office as an adult, while you are taking um, a meeting with, with your very important prospect? Uh, what if I told you you can have that sense of unity with your spouse and any relationship that you have in your life? Um, would you say like, no, not interested? Right. Yes. People will be like, sign me up. <laughs> I, I think that that is exactly the tool. At least that is the tool that I use that gives me that sense of freedom and invincibility and strength and positive energy, not the energy that stress gives you. Stress gives us energy, but it burns you. It's just like alcohol. It gives you energy, but it burns you. It comes with uh. a problem. Mindfulness and meditation does not come with any cost. There is no side effect. It requires consistency and time, and that is the price to pay, so to say, right? But the payback is huge, and you have this fulfillment and happiness and the sense of unity that we all long for. That is, we have it as children, then we'll lose it as adults, but then we keep looking for it. We want to find it. That's why we buy stuff. That's why we achieve. That's why we consume things because we want to find that unity, that happiness, but we're thinking wrong about it. None of the material stuff will get us there. So what if we stopped, we found that, and from that sense of unity, fulfillment, and happiness, we address life. And then that comes the sense of service. That comes the sense of um, achieving, but not for the sense of blinging things, but because it expands you. And it's good for the world and it's good for others. And it's just that all rounded sense of life makes sense and, it, and it's happy place. So um, that's what mindfulness and meditation are for me and has been for, for people that really see the value in it. And I, and I, um, and I think many would agree. Um, but yeah, it, it requires that stage of going through the transition and it's a never-ending work. It's not something that you do once and you're happy and fulfilled. It's a lifestyle. So for me, I meditate every day. I am a meditator. This is who I am. This is not what I do. I, I do it naturally. I can close my eyes for a few seconds and I do it everywhere. I've, I actually have done it before we started this conversation. <laughs> nice. And set the intention of what am I doing. So it's, a, it's, it's really a life. Well. Wonderful message about mindfulness. I love the work you're doing, Oksana. And as always, I enjoy uh, speaking with you. How can people find out a little bit more about your work as well as the book? Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to have those conversations with you going very deep. Um, so uh, the best resources are the website, um, satva.me, S-A-T-T-V-A dot M-E. It also has the section of the book. Um, the book is Next Level You, How I Transform My Life with Mindfulness and Meditation. It is published on Amazon um, in Kindle, hard copy and paperback, hardcover and paperback. Um, and uh, yes, you can also 
find me uh, at my personal website, oksanaesberard.com, that it's more as a speaker and um, the messages that I send me personally. Um, but these are the three resources that are constantly updated and fresh. And also social media, all the possible social media, the, the big ones that you can find. I'll be happy to connect and, and hear um, and see how, how I can assist and help and answer further questions. Thank you, Oksana, for sharing your insights on why it works. Thank you, Joe. My pleasure. If you enjoyed this show and others, I have a favor to ask. I've just released my YouTube series, The Charisma Chronicles. I need 100 subscribers to be eligible for a custom URL that is easier for you to use and remember. I'm about 25% there. After you stop listening, please go to YouTube, type Charisma Chronicles, and subscribe to my channel. That's it. If you want, you can even watch an episode to learn how to really get more charisma. Useful for holiday parties and family get-togethers. As always, thank you for your support. You can find Next Level You on Amazon and my earlier Why It Works episode with Oksana on mindfulness at connectioncounselor.com. Thanks for listening to this episode of Why It Works. For more information about Joe Joe Coaching, as well as access to my articles, videos, and podcasts, visit joquanjo.com and stay tuned for our next Why It Works adventure.